Turn your Bibles. We continue our Lucan sermon series, and today we're in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3, the Gospel of Luke, the third chapter, for a sermon entitled, The Water is Fine. John is the forerunner to Jesus. He arrives and he declares, get ready, Christ is coming. He warns the people that they have to change in order to be ready to receive the Messiah. What is crooked must be made straight. When we deviate from the well-worn ways of God and follow our own ways, we're headed for destruction. Right here in chapter 3. Like a tiger overtaking his prey by surprise, the prophet John pounces upon our wayward path and proclaims, You must Repent. Along, only along the road of humiliation, repentance, and confession, and calling upon God will we finally receive salvation. What is lacking must be supplied. What is in the way, our pride and self-satisfaction must be broken down and pushed aside. The story the two miraculous births earlier in our series began Luke's orderly account. You remember Elizabeth was elderly and barren. But the angel of the Lord declared that God would bless her and Zacharias with a son and you shall call him John. Mary, moreover, was a virgin. But the angel Gabriel said that she would conceive and bear a son he shall be called Jesus. We should not be surprised, therefore, knowing the miraculous introduction and the gospel of Luke. The destinies of John and Jesus are woven together as the plan of God to call God's people to repentance, to the river for baptism. They announce together the arrival of the kingdom of God. But before Jesus can take center stage the preaching of the kingdom, we must first hear the clarion call of John the Baptist to repent. Well, look at verses 1 and 2. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Traconitus. Lysanias was tetrarch of Abilene. And in the high priest of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. Before Luke tells us about John's commission and ministry, he sets the stage by telling us about the secular authorities and religious authorities that are in power at the time of John's arrival at the Jordan. It's a mention of both the secular and the sacred authorities reminds us that God's salvation happens in real time in human history. There are real rulers and real high priests at the time that God acts in human history in the persons of John and Jesus. The Bethlehem baby steps down in real time in a real place while the world is going on. And we're reminded of Rome's who's who list here. Let's start with Tiberius. 
Now, this is very important. Tiberius allows us to date the ministry of John and thus the baptism, the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. Luke's reference at Tiberius, notice it was the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar. If we calculate from the time of Tiberius's co-regency, co-writing with Augustus in AD 11 and 12, we can project that the, the date for the ministry of John and thus the beginning, the baptism of Jesus is AD 26 or 27. We know right where we are in human history. The mention of Tiberius's name along with the other Roman rulers reminds us that Rome is in charge of the world at this time. Next is the name Pilate. Pilate's power was exercised as a prefect in Judea from AD 26 to 36. So that would line up with Tiberius in 26 or 27. Now, you know, Pilate is something of a good guy at the end of the story. Who's, who's kind of, well, he's, he's, he's tortured about whether or not to crucify Jesus, but that's not his history. He was a, a very cruel man. He always used violence against the people, and he was so violent that the Romans removed him in AD 37, and he practically disappears from the record of human history. Then there's the Herods. Notice all the Herods. Herod was Tetrarch of Galilee. The first Herod is Herod Antipas, a, a son of Herod the Great that was back there when when Jesus was born, the Tetrarch of Galilee. Herod Antipas ruled Galilee from Perea from 4 BC to 29, AD 29, so that fits with our 26, 27 timetable. A Tetrarch was a title for a little prince or a petty prince. The next Herod is, is Philip. Philip was Tetrarch in the region of Iturea and Traconitus, and being less ambitious than his brothers, Philip was given very small territories and he ruled until his death, until AD 34. Lysanias is the next. He's fairly insignificant, was out of office by AD 37. And given his paucity of, of powers, scholars are amazed it even made the list at all amongst the Roman rulers. And now we, we move from the secular to the sacred. We move from Tiberius and, and Pontius and the Herods. Now we move to notice Annas. And Caiaphas, having set forth the secular powers of the day, now Luke takes us to the sacred leaders. Annas was high priest from AD 6 to 15, so why is he still in the picture in 26 or 27? He was followed by five of his sons. He was followed by a son-in-law and maybe even a grandson. So even though we have other names like Caiaphas being in charge as a high priest, Annas was actually the puppeteer and his sons and son-in-law and perhaps a grandson were mere puppets because, well, this parade of puppets, the real power was still Annas, the high priest. We should observe two insights from Luke's catalog of the corrupt leaders the worldly power brokers who were reigning over their individual realms, when God begins to move in human history by the proclamation of John and the presence of Jesus. First of all, they may be representative of Mary's song. You remember what Mary sang back in chapter 1? He's brought down the rulers from their thrones, and God has exalted those who are humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty-handed. Maybe there's some way in which Mary's song is fulfilled already. The prophetic proclamation 
while we're 2,000 years later from where we were then, and I ask you, how many of you would known when you walked through this morning who Lysanias was? Would you, or Herod Philip, or really Tiberius Caesar for that matter? But all the world, millions and millions, know the name of John and the name of Jesus. Yes, God has brought down the rulers from their thrones and he sent away the rich and be handed. But the humble, like John and Jesus, have been lifted up. There's a second thing. Not only are we fulfilling Mary's song already in, in chapter 3, we are introduced in a masterful stroke by Luke of four major players in the passion of our Lord. You learn about Pilate here in these first few verses. You'll meet Pilate again at the end. You learn about Herod and Annas and Caiaphas, four major players in the crucifixion of our Christ come to the foreground right here at the front of the gospel. Well, notice the powerful word. The word of God came to John, verse two. John is not a scribe who tries to interpret scripture for us. Rather, John is a prophet and he pounces and he proclaims like a prophet, thus saith the Lord, it's time to repent. He comes, he pounces. The word of the Lord came to John. Had not the angel told Zacharias and had not Zacharias said, he will be called the prophet of the Most High and he will go before the Lord, this John, chapter 176, to prepare the way of the Lord. This menu of men of power early in Luke's gospel sets the stage for the arrival of John the baptizer. And Luke takes us now beyond the powers into the place. Notice what happens in verse 2. He's in the wilderness. It all happens in the wilderness. We move from the palaces of the powerful and now we move to the place of the wilderness. Now wilderness would have been a word for an uninhabited region. It reminds us of Isaiah 40 where the, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. John is fulfilling the prophecy. We're reminded Elijah himself was taken up. The one whose spirit John the baptizer comes in. He was taken up beyond the Jordan from the wilderness. And the prophets had told us when God renews his people, Hosea, Jeremiah, Amos, he will happen and begin in the wilderness. And so John the baptizer, having the word of God, goes to the wilderness like the prophets have said, the place of renewal and the place of cleansing for God's people. Well, notice what he preaches in verses three through six, the preaching of repentance. And he came to all the district around the Jordan, preaching baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As written in the book, the words Isaiah the prophet, Isaiah 40, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every ravine shall be filled up and every mountain and hill shall be brought low. The crooked shall become straight. The rough roads need to be made smooth. And all flesh, not just Israel, all flesh, Isaiah said, will see the salvation of God. John's message is clear. Ancient Israel, you must repent. Do a 180. Turn away from your ways and go to God's way. 
Before you'll ever receive God's salvation, this coming in the Messiah who will follow me, you must get your heart ready. You must repent. Now the word for preaching here is really the word of announcing or heralding. He comes announcing. John's message is not mundane, but rather it is a a unique, it is an announcement. He's heralding baptism, that ancient Israel must come and be baptized. Get ready for the Christ is coming who will say, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's a call to humility. It's a call to repentance, and it would have been absolutely unprecedented. You see, there might have been a proselyte who might be baptized, someone other than an Israelite, other than a Jew, but it was unheard of for a prophet to go down to the river and call the Jews to get in the water. He wasn't calling the other nations to repent, but rather he was calling ancient Israel herself to get into the water and repent, submit to the baptismal waters. It would have been so offensive to the ancient Israelites. While John's use of the Jordan waters portrays a cleansing of the heart, John's baptism was neither ultimate nor final. It really anticipates a baptism that comes with Christ. Baptism in the Spirit. And Christian baptism transcends John and it shows when we're baptized that we participate with Christ. We die with Christ. We're buried and we rise with Christ. John's baptism is a call to get the heart ready for the real baptism of the Spirit. The baptism into the church. We understand at last John's true mission was that of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord. Luke describes following Jesus as a journey or a way. In fact, his description of the church in Acts 9, 16, 19, 22, 24, Christians are called followers of the way. Get ready to follow the way. Get ready to journey along the way of following Jesus. Just like rough terrain, Isaiah says, unrepentant hearts and smoldering sin block the way of the Lord into our hearts. Therefore, our hearts have to be changed. Where we're crooked, it has to be straightened out. Get ready for the Lord. And where the road is high, you have to cut it down and get get the pride out of our lives. And where it's low, where there's the potholes, you have to fill them in. Make everything ready. Those crooked roads straight. Get ready the way of the Lord. He's coming. The year was 1984. I noticed that Greenville Technical College, where I grew up, which would be the equivalent of something like Amarillo College in Greenville, South Carolina, they were making over everything. They were putting up new signage and totally new landscape. It had been okay before, but it was like they came in there and redid everything. They had some brick buildings, and the brick didn't match the other buildings, you know, an area of architecture, and they built something that now looked like kind of off a bit. They actually ripped the brick off the front of those buildings and re-bricked them the right color. Perfectly good brick, rip it off and put new brick on. And my father was a professor of medical technology there, and so I asked him, why on earth are you redoing everything at Greenville Tech? 
The landscaping's new. The signs are new. You're switching out the brick on the buildings. What on earth is going on? Well, Ronald Reagan's coming in the fall, my father said. (laughs) And we're totally giving the campus a facelift. I was utterly shocked. So much preparation and planning would be made for about a two-hour visit. Yes, the most powerful man in the world at the time, but a two-hour visit. In the same fashion, like Isaiah calling God's people to get ready for Yahweh's kingly arrival, John the Baptist calls ancient Israel to make radical preparation. For the coming of the Christ, that's crooked. It must be made straight. And where it's low, you got to fill it in. And where it's high, you got to cut it down. You've got to make it easy for the Christ to arrive. Get your hearts ready. And finally, as Isaiah has already said, the Christ is coming not just for ancient Israel, but all flesh, Isaiah said, shall see the salvation of God. Reminds us of Luke's second volume in Acts, how he closed it out in, in Acts 28, 28. Therefore, let it be known to you, the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles so that they will also listen. In verses 7, they're fleeing the wrath of God. Therefore, they began saying to the multitudes who were going out to be baptized him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to free the wrath of God? He's calling upon them to know that God's judgment is headed their way. I mean, John's a prophet. Here shows ancient Israel up. The tax gatherers and the soldiers are there. And they show up to the river to hear this prophet preach to get ready for the Messiah. Instead of calling them sons of Israel, he calls them sons of snakes. You sons of snakes. Who told you to come down here and get ready and be baptized and miss the wrath of God? He doesn't depict them as children of Abraham. Rather, slithering sons of snakes gives us the notion of Satan and following the ways of darkness. John wonders, who told you to come down here and miss the wrath of God? Look at verses 8 and 9. He tells them to, to bring bringing forth fruit. Therefore, bring forth fruits in keeping with repentance. Do not begin to say yourselves, we, are, we have Abraham for our father, for I say to you that God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. Also the ax is ready and laid to the root of the trees. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. By saying that, that God can take the stones themselves and turn them into descendants of Abraham... He's saying that the true people of God are not identified by their lineage from Abraham, but rather by taking God's gracious initiative, by bearing the fruit of the kingdom. That's a marker of a true son, a true child of Abraham. Uses the imagery of Isaiah 40 again. We'll chop down those trees. God will chop down the trees that don't bear fruit for the kingdom, and they'll be cast in the judgment fire of God. Well, the multitudes began to ask the question, what should we do? Look at verse 10. And the multitudes were questioning him, saying, what do we need to do? It was a shocking message to ancient Israel. Those who were the sons of Abraham. 
For the forerunner, one coming in the power and in the spirit, one like Elijah showing up and telling them the wrath of God is coming in a fire and you must repent. It's coming. The axe is coming. It'll chop down the trees and your lineage won't mean anything. They are shocked by such a message. No one had ever confronted them with their sin and the crookedness of the roads and their ways. And so they begin to ask in all sincerity, if the wrath of God is coming in a fire, what do we need to do, John? Tell us, what do we need to do? How will we miss this wrath of God? What do we need to do? And he would answer and say to them, verse 11, let the man who has two tunics share with him who has none. Let him who has food share his food. Some tax gatherers also came to be baptized. And he said to them, teacher, what do we need to do? And he said to them, collect no more than what you have been ordered to. Some of the soldiers were questioning him saying, and what about us? What about us? What do we need to do? And he said to them, do not take money from anyone by force nor accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. What do we need to do? How do we miss this wrath of God? How do we get ready for the kingdom? You must live lives that show the righteousness of the kingdom. You must bear fruit for the kingdom. If you're a fruitless tree, you have no faith. You'll be chopped down and thrown into the fire. What do we need to do? Those who have much need to share. And the tax gatherers stop cheating the people. You see, they would bid on a tax job for an area and then mark up the taxes. And, and the soldiers would bully people around because they could and take wages from common workers. They exercised tyranny over the people who were powerless. What do we need to do? You need to behave like people of the kingdom. Changed hearts always leads to changed lives. Changed hearts always leads to changed lives. But then they're sure that he's the Messiah. Look at verse 15. Now, while the people were in the state of expectation and all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he might be the Christ, John answered and said to them all, as for me, I baptize you with water, but one's coming who's mightier than I. I'm not fit to untie the thong of his sandals and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And his winnowing fork is in the hand to thoroughly clean his threshing floor to gather the wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with an unquenchable fire. And so with many other exhortations, he preached the gospel to the people, the good news. John's preaching and call to repentance stirred messianic expectations. Is this the one? Is John the Messiah? Is he the Christ we've been waiting for? Oh, no, no, no. I'm baptizing with water. I'm getting you ready for the kingdom. But there's one coming. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And he will baptize you with fire. And of course, remember, on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, there are tongues of fire. The Holy Spirit's coming upon those who are baptized with water. And the one who's coming after me... I'm not even worthy to do the lowest job of a slave. I can't undo his sandals to wash his feet. John is saying, I'm not worthy. He is the one who's worthy. The long-awaited Messiah, however, he'll carry forth the judgment of Isaiah. 
He will take the chaff and the wheat together and he'll throw it in the air and the wind will blow the chaff away and the heavier wheat will fall and it will be gathered in the barn, but he's coming for judgment. Make no mistake to find God's people. Look at verses 19 through 20. But when Herod the Tetrarch was reproved by John on account of Herodias, uh, you can imagine when you preach like John the Baptist, everybody doesn't really appreciate your preaching. Well, John, didn't, John was no respecter of person. He didn't care if you were the king. He called out your sin. When Herod the Tetrarch was reproved by John, what happened here is Herod left his wife and took his brother's wife away from his brother. And John called it adultery for what it was. And you know the end of the story, he finds himself down in the dungeon and he is beheaded because he preaches against Herodias and her sin with Herod. Look at verse 20. He locked John up in the prison. We know the rest of the story that likewise he was beheaded. I want you to notice verse 21. And now it came about when all the people were baptized. Now look at this. Have you ever read it this way before? It came about when all the people were baptized. Jesus also was baptized. Have you ever read it that way? Jesus did what the people were doing. When all the people were called in the waters for washing, Jesus got in line. When all the people were baptized, Jesus also. Jesus had no sin, of course. He didn't need to repent, but he was obedient to the call of the prophet for baptism. Now, when all the people were baptized, Jesus also. Sometimes I'm surprised at people's reluctance to be baptized, and I think to myself quietly, now, are you better than Jesus who submitted to baptism? Is there something in you and your pride that won't allow you to plunge into the waters of washing and repentance? While all the people were being baptized, Jesus also how could you have pride about something like that? How could you be too good to plunge into the waters of God's cleansing to demonstrate your faith, to show that you die with him and you rise with him? When all the people were being baptized, Jesus also. The Holy Spirit descended upon him, verse 22, and bodily form like a dove, and a voice came out of heaven, Thou art my beloved Son. With you, I'm well pleased. Prayer of Jesus, wise baptized, opens up the window between earth and heaven. And the bodily form of a dove, the, the Spirit descends, and we hear this thunderous voice at the very beginning of the ministry of Jesus. Right there, the Spirit comes, and the announcement is, my Messiah is here. Look at verse 23. And that begins his ministry. That begins his ministry. John issued a clarion call to the tax, tax gatherers. And John issued a forceful message to the soldiers. 
And John preached against the religious authorities and John preached to the everyday people of ancient Israel. And everyday people like you and I joined John at the Jordan River. And they were all repenting of their sin. They were all ready to do a 180. Well, what do I need to do? I'm a tax cutter. How should I live differently? Or I'm a soldier. What do I need to do? And, and I imagine the list went all day long. John, I hear you. It's coming. The wrath, the fire. What do I need to do? Calls for all of them to repent, to change their lives. As sinners, if they're really seeking the salvation of God, the repentance calls for a fruitful change that aligns our way with God's way. The Messiah is here, John says. The Jordan River is right behind him while he's preaching. And then he says, come on into the water. The water's fine. You, yes, you, you, ancient Israel, you, and all your pride. Yes, you, meaning me. Yes, you, meaning you. You need to humble yourself. The water was fine enough for the people. It was fine enough for Jesus. Is it fine enough for you? This morning is this call to repentance, a call from John the baptizer. Yes, even from God to you. This morning is a call to join God in all that God is doing, getting ready for the Messiah and the gospel of Luke, to join all that God is doing in the midst of this church. Repent. If we've ever been in a wilderness, we're in a wilderness now. And out in the wilderness, there's a voice. And the voice says, we got to stop. We got to turn. We got to humble ourselves. We got to call ourselves what we are. We are sinners in the hands of an almighty God who judges. And not walk to the water, but race and plunge to get ready for his kingdom. Come on in. Come on in. The water's fine. Oh God, we come this morning. We realize that we're no better than ancient Israel. We're no better than the tax gatherers and the soldiers. We know better than the religious authorities who are pretending. The reality is the call of John is a call to us today. To stop doing things our way and to look to God's way. And as we're going through Luke's gospel, Jesus is arriving on the scene. And heaven's opening up and the thunderous voice is saying, this is the one we've waited for and he is here. And now that he is here, everything must change. Everything about our lives must change and our relationships must change. Our interests, our values, our core, it must all be different because he's here. 
name of Jesus we pray. Amen.